0: I Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Side, yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't the say the score. And laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come on, out of the gun. who's winning? Right falls towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Uh, say the damn score. <laughs> You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. But before we get started with today's podcast, here's a short message from the Say The Damn Score marketing team. Hey, marketing team, get over here. I'm on my way. What's up? You need to tell our great listeners about the Critique Crew service. Oh, I'd be happy to. Say The Damn Score now offers a critique service. You send us 8 to 10 minutes of your work, We have one of our nine expert broadcasters listen to your work and provide detailed written feedback of your strengths weaknesses and places you can improve many coaching and critique services are expensive not ours. For just over 30 bucks, you can receive a professional critique of your work. Whether you're a young broadcaster coming up short in the job market or a veteran trying to reach the next level, for the price of a happy hour tab, you could be on your way to becoming a better broadcaster. Visit saythedamnscore.com slash critique dash crew or click on the critique crew link in the show notes. Now back to the show. Hey, production team, get back over here. Welcome back to the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a high school and small college play-by-play broadcaster. We record from the Say the Damn Score studio in Beersford, South Dakota, a.k.a. my spare bedroom. If you're tuning in for the first time, this is a podcast about sportscasting where I talk with sportscasters from all over the country about the business and sharing people's stories. This week, I'm joined by Larry Weir, the longtime voice of Eastern Washington football and basketball. Larry,
1: I hope you're doing well today. I am, Logan. It's my pleasure. Uh, I've seen a lot of stuff, and I know a few people that have been your guest, and I'm looking forward to this. should be fun. Yeah, I've, you've been recommended by a couple different people who have been guests.
0: So, uh, obviously, a lot of people think highly of you. And when I was reading about you, I laughed at something because there was... Sus- something I could relate to completely that when you were young, you would shoot hoops in your driveway and do the play-by-play of, of the game in your head as you were just screwing around outside shooting baskets. And I thought I was the only person who did that. I've never heard of anyone else. I thought I was crazy and I'm glad to find out that
1: maybe I'm still crazy, but at least there's somebody else crazy out there. (laughs) You know, I, I grew up as an only child on a wheat farm in the middle of nowhere, with no kids within two and a half, three miles, and so I had to entertain myself. And so whether it was shooting baskets or throwing a baseball off a concrete, a rubber ball off a concrete wall, or or throwing a football to myself in the backyard, I was, you know, my dad was a, a sports fan, and so we'd watch games together or, or listen to games together on the radio, and and uh and so i just mimicked the play by play guy in my head while i was doing all this and i i really think it probably played quite a role a in me being able to do this for a living but then b even just getting the opportunity to do it because when i started i didn't have any training i didn't go to a college i almost stumbled into this um uh, it was something I wanted to do, but my, my opportunity to do it was a complete fluke and a lark uh, as to how I got started. So I think that had something to do with it.
0: We'll get more into that in a minute, but I want to follow up on this because I find this interesting. Probably nobody else does. So if you want to hit the 30-second skip, feel free. But, um how detailed did you get in your mind, play by play? Because I know that when I was doing it, I had five teammates. They all had different names, and each year I would go as far as to make up new ones when other people who were supposed to be seniors graduated. how How in depth were you on your in in the play by play in your head while you were practicing basketball?
1: I think you were a little bit more detailed than than I was, just because I didn't necessarily, you know, flip guys over that that would have graduated. Um, but yeah, I, everybody had names and I'd pass the ball to myself. I'd throw it off a wall, you know, or, 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 you know, whatever it might be, um, you know, to, to simulate a pass or if it was football, you know, sometimes I'd, I was the quarterback, but I was also obviously the running back and I was the receiver and I was the defender too. And so I was having to make up names and, you know, it was, it, it, a, it was something to do, and, and, and you know, B, it kept me outside and out of my parents' hair, and that was probably a good thing for them. All right, you mentioned that you getting
0: into broadcasting was a complete fluke, and that it was basically just a lucky break at the right time that you were able to get your foot in the door. What happened for you?
1: Well, my I was eighteen years old, and my uh, mom's brother, my uncle. Uh, lived in a place called Toppenish, Washington, which is in the Yakima Valley in central Washington, uh, about 120 miles or so from where I grew up, uh, in the Walla Walla Valley in southeastern Washington. And uh, he lived across the street from the guy that owned the radio station in Toppenish. And one day they were standing out in the in the street talking, and, and the guy that owned the station, a fellow named Roger Turnbow, uh, managed just out of the blue to tell my uncle Bruce that they had a big tribal basketball tournament. This was in April, either late March or early April in 1980. And they had a big tribal basketball tournament coming up with, with uh, Indian tribes from throughout the western U.S. and and even into the Midwest all coming into that area uh, for this huge tournament. And they were going to do the semifinals on Friday night and then the uh, third place and the championship game on Saturday. And he, he didn't have anybody to do it. The guys that usually... Uh, did his games were a, a couple of brothers and they were out of town. And my uncle just happened to mention, well, my nephew wants to do something like that. And Roger said, Oh yeah, where does he work? And, well, he's going to school. Well, is he studying broadcasting? No. Has he ever done a game before? No. And for whatever reason, Roger decided that I guess I was better than he would be at, at trying to broadcast a ball game. So he said, eh, tell him to come up and do the games. And so I came and I, I did those four ball games, and on Sunday morning, uh, you know, we did two Friday night and two Saturday night, and then on Sunday morning, Roger came over to the house, and and he said, how would you like to come back in the fall and do my high school games, football and basketball? And I said, sure, I'd love to. And so for a couple of years, uh, while I was going to college, I'd drive, you know, 250-mile thereabout round trip to – Uh, go over to Toppenish to do high school football and and, and boys' basketball games. And that's kind of how I got my start. And from there, um, I I went to Eastern Washington University. And in my first quarter there, one of the people that also worked at the station in Toppenish um, had moved to Yakima, and they had lost their play-by-play guy. And and he said, how would you like to come over here and, and do our overnights So I was on the air as a disc jockey from midnight to six, and then on Friday nights in football season and Friday and Saturday nights in basketball season, do our basketball games because football season had ended at that point. And and I said, sure. And so I dropped out of college and went and did that. And then the guy that owned this Toppenish station, Roger Turnbow again, uh, sold that station, but went to work managing a station in Walla Walla. And so he said, how much money did you Get to uh, to to do what you're doing in Yakima, and I told him, and he says, "Well, I'll give you more than that, and come over here and do my overnights and and do my football games. Plus, I'll throw in community college football." And so that uh, that went on for about three years, and and it seemed like I I almost fell into more things than I actually did. I have not applied for a job, believe it or not, since 1989. Which job was that? I applied to do the Boise Hawks baseball games in the Northwest League. And I got that position after applying. And then as it ended up, they lost their radio deal that season. And they could not guarantee me a job. And a fellow named Rich Waltz, who you probably have heard of and know, the Florida Marlins TV announcer, was working at the time in Spokane, uh, broadcasting uh, short-season ball for the Spokane Indians in the Northwest League, and Rich got the job in Wichita. And so in March of 1989, a guy named Paul Sorensen, who's currently my broadcast partner on the Eastern Washington broadcast, this all kind of intermixes, and it's almost like a Kentucky family history, it seems like. Um, But Sorensen had the radio rights at the time of the Spokane Indians, and he said, hey, Rich has gone to, to Wichita. Do you want to come in here and do the Indians games? And because that was guaranteed where the Boise situation wasn't because they had lost their radio station, um, I ended up going to to Spokane and working with him, and then Paul had the Eastern Washington rights. so I ended up getting that job in 1991, also from Rich when he had to move on from those um, after he took another job after Wichita.
0: So before we go forward, I want to go backwards a little bit. You mentioned at the start... Of us kind of talking about your path that you weren't going to school for broadcasting. What were you going to school for at that time? I'm not really sure. <laughs> You're just going to go.
1: I was, going for the girls. Exactly. Yeah, I was just going to to school to to go to school at the time. You know, I I knew I wanted to broadcast, but I had no idea of how to do it. Um, you know, my teacher um for broadcast that i've always said is a guy named Bob Robertson who was a long-time play-by-play guy at Washington State University and 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 Bob was really really good and i was a really really good listener because i would sit there and listen to Bob do a, a WSU game and nobody could talk to me because i was keeping statistics off what Bob said because i wanted to know yeah bob was really good at telling you whether you know Bernard Jackson had 120 yards rushing, or 87 yards rushing, or whatever it might be. But I wanted to know at the time, uh, in real time, that Bob was so good and so descriptive with his play-by-play. You knew how many yards. I mean, he didn't. He was never off by more than a yard in a game as to to you know in his descriptions as to what a guy had rushing or passing or whatever it might be. And it's kind of funny because if I'm statting a game today, if I'm working a high school game or something where they don't have stats and I have to keep the stats, or to this day in a basketball game, the same thing that I was doing 40-some-odd years ago listening to Bob Robertson is the same way that I've stat a game today You know, in 2017. It's something that I got comfortable with, and it's just something I've continued to do. So there's been an
0: interesting pattern I've done probably
1: it's either 51 or 52 of these
0: podcast episodes with broadcasters from all over the country. And a good portion of them have either gone to school for something that was completely unrelated to broadcasting or went to school for a little while for broadcasting until they got experience like you, left school for a real job, got that tangible experience and went on to make it. How important is the actual educational part of going to college to succeed in the sportscasting industry, as opposed to maybe, for me, it was important to go there to grow up and quit being a cocky little brat. And uh, that was the most important part for me. But how important part is the actual learning?
1: You know, I, 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 I don't know whether you can teach somebody really to do this. I think you almost have to have to have that whatever it is, gene or intrinsic ability or or whatever it might be. I don't know if you can teach someone to do this job. I think you either have the ability to do it or you don't. You know, I couldn't be a surgeon. I don't have the dexterity nor the stomach to do something like that. But there's a lot of other things that I couldn't do either. I just don't have the skills. Um, And so... I think you can take a broadcaster and make him an OK at sports play by play if they know what's going on. But I don't think that that person will um, really be able to excel at this job. Uh, so I, w- I would say, Logan, like like you, I, I, college is important maybe to, to, to do some growing up. Um, I also tell people it's just important to get a degree because this is a hard business to break into um guys that are aging don't want to give up their seats uh and, and so there're only a, a certain number of jobs calling professional or college games and there's a lot more people who are capable of doing the job um than there are jobs available so i tell people go get your degree so that you have something to fall back on. Because if you do try doing this for 10 or 15 years and you you can't get past a a high school level or a small college level, you need to have something to fall back on. Uh, So I tell people to go get your degree, but, uh, you know, really I don't think the degree is necessary uh, to do this job. So if somebody came to you
0: and said, you know what, I have the option of getting some tangible experience or finishing a degree, what would your suggestion be?
1: You know, it probably would be based on if I could hear that person, uh, if they've had any experience at all before in doing this, just because, you know, if it's a, a person that, that maybe is a little bit more of a natural for this, I would, my, my advice might be a little bit different, but at the same point in time, you know, it, it, it never hurts somebody to go and, and get that degree. Um, uh, but, I guess if your situation was you either had to go take this job or go to school, I'd probably tell them to go take the job. And, and uh, you know, if that didn't work out, you might be able to go back to school. But I've seen very few people, actually, <laughs> and I'm one of them. I said when I left to go to Yakima, I promised my parents I'd go back to college and, and get my degree, and, and I never did. Um you know it's it's difficult once you've started down that path of being out of school to actually go back again.
0: So I want to go backwards again. You talked about growing up a long way away from everybody on a farm and ranch in Washington. And I know that the the stereotype of growing up on a farm and ranch is you learn a work ethic and a little bit of a mental toughness so to speak that you it's hard to get anywhere else. And I think there's some truth to that as well. How much did working or not working, I suppose doing work on a farm and growing up on a farm, how much did that help to shape you into a successful broadcaster?
1: Well, I I certainly think that it teaches you a work ethic, um, you know, and I did have to work from, (laughs) from the time that I can remember if I was, you know, when I was a little kid, I'd have to go out and hoe the weeds in the garden. Um, once I got to the point where I could, um, you know, operate a lawn mower safely. I was probably 10, maybe 11. Uh, I was mowing the lawn when I got a little bit, well, it was probably about that time I started moving irrigation pipe. Um, You know, I think probably when I got to be a teenager, I was, you know, bucking bales or uh, well, and even before that I was mucking out uh, stalls in the barn and and meaning shoveling the crap basically is what that means. You know, so there I had various jobs on the the farm all through growing up. And I think the one that probably sent me over the edge uh, was walking. We had about a thousand acres of wheat and we uh, harvested about half of that acreage each year, roughly. And so if there wasn't enough weeds in the field to make it worthwhile for my father to take the rod weeder out and do it, it was Larry who got to go through 400 or 500 acres of fields with a hoe and hoe the weeds. And my dad was such a perfectionist that if I didn't hoe the weeds and have the root of the the weed sticking up in the air so he could see it upon inspection, then there was trouble. So I learned work ethic, but also, um, I guess, a sense of being a perfectionist a little bit and and making sure to try to get the job done right when you're doing the job um, through that, not half-assing it, I guess, if I can use that term, um, to get through a job. Yeah, we're on a podcast. You can say whatever you want, but, you know... (laughs) I live in
0: South Dakota. I grew up in Nebraska. That's ag country to the extreme, and I know that a lot of times there's pressure for the son to take over the family farm. You obviously went another direction. Was there ever any um pressure for you to do that or resistance when you wanted to go into broadcasting?
1: You know, I think my dad would have loved for me to to come in and and, and take that over, but at the same point in time, you know, that was his dream to do that. And it wasn't mine. And, and he was very supportive, uh, you know, of, of me going out and and, and, and you know, trying to, you know, make it in the broadcasting industry. And, and you know, my mom was as well, I, even though I think they were both really disappointed. I didn't get my college degree, um, but they were all they were very supportive. But I'm sure dad would have liked it had I wanted to carry on in his footsteps as well. So let's go back
0: to broadcasting now. We've talked enough about uh, invisible play-by-play uh, on the driveway and farming. We should get back to broadcasting here. You went through some of your path to where you are now. What was the break that you got that eventually landed you the job that you're at doing Division One basketball and football for Eastern Washington?
1: Well, uh, as I said earlier, Rich Waltz was the guy that I took over for with the Spokane Indians in 1989, and I did their games again in 1990. And then uh, and, and Rich had gone on to Wichita. And then Rich got another job, and I can't remember which one it was. Um, but at any rate, in 1991, he told uh, Paul that he was Paul Sorensen, Um, again, who ran Impact Sports and is my current color commentator on the Eastern football games. He told Paul that he wasn't coming back uh, to do Eastern games. And so Paul said, uh, you know, the first person that he called was me on that. And he said, do you want the Eastern games? And absolutely, I want the Eastern games. When I first uh, had heard of Paul Sorensen, it was in 1980. Well, he was an All-American safety at Washington State. I watched him play a couple of times in in 1980 and 1981 as a a safety. Um, But there was an article in the Spokesman Review in 1980, uh, the Spokane newspaper locally in 1985 or 1986, that said Impact Sports takes over the right to Eastern Washington University games. So I actually called him at that point in time, and I said I'd love to – you know, do the Eastern games. And he says, well, I have somebody for that, but send me a tape. And so I sent him a tape and and he said, would you like to do, after listening to it, he said, we have a a television package here in Spokane. Uh, Would you like to do our greater Spokane league high school game of the week on TV? And and so I accepted that job. And, and uh, so I was in contact with Paul from that point on, he'd do state basketball tournaments. Uh, He did the Spokane Indians at the time, Spokane, Chiefs at the time. The Eastern, he had the Washington State University uh, uh, football and men's basketball rights at the time. Uh, Gonzaga basketball uh, rights at that point in time. And so Impact Sports was a fairly big player uh, in the inland Northwest at that point in time. And so once I kind of got in that umbrella with Paul, uh, that gave me the baseball opportunity in in 89 and then the Eastern uh, opportunity in 1991.
0: Was there... What was the most difficult adjustment switching from someone who had done radio for his entire career and then having to do games on
1: TV? Oh, the whole thing. I mean, I still do occasionally games on TV. And, and uh, you know, from having a producer in your ear um, to just changing your style, because obviously you don't have to be as descriptive on the TV uh, as you do on the radio. Uh, so I have to change uh, you know, I, I think on TV that the analyst is the star. I think in, in, on radio, the play-by-play guy is the star, so to speak. Uh, that's the most important person in the broadcast because on radio, you've got to have your eyes and that would be the play-by-play guy on TV. You have your eyes, you want to have the game explained uh, or the play explained to you a little bit more. And so that's why I think the analyst is the, is the one who, who needs to shine there. Uh, but yeah, just uh, I think mainly the main thing would be uh, getting comfortable in front of the camera, uh, adjusting uh, my style, and then having that producer in your earphone because I don't have that at this point in time uh, with radio. Maybe other guys uh, at higher levels do. I don't. Um, I, I'm pretty much a, a one-man band with the exception of Paul um, you know, alongside. I remember in 1991, I think it was, I went to Nebraska to do a basketball game. And they had, I think, four seats lined out for Eastern radio. And I showed up (laughs) and uh, they said, is this going to be enough room for you? And I'm, well, yeah, it's just me. Well, where's your engineer? I'm the engineer. Where's your statistician? I'm the statistician. Where's your color commentator? (laughs) I don't have one of those either. So, uh, you know, maybe at at a higher uh, situation, a power five school, maybe there is somebody in your ear from time to time, but not at Eastern Washington University. So
0: there's a couple other interesting parts of your story that I found, but I couldn't find exactly where they fit in the timeline. It says at one point you took a three year break from radio. What went into that decision and what were you doing during that time?
1: Well, I didn't necessarily take a three-year break from radio. I took a. Uh, I was. I was given a two-year sabbatical from Eastern basketball, um, and that was just a situation where with the, the uh, we changed flagship stations, and uh, part of the deal with changing. Well, we changed radio stations, not just flagship stations. We it, it, there was no network at the time. It was just. Uh, Spokane Station. When we moved to a different building in town, it was negotiated that one of the guys in their building would do Eastern basketball. And so um, I took a a two-year sojourn from that and actually left the area for a while. uh, I went to Elko, Nevada to do uh, news at at a radio station for a group of radio stations uh, in Elko. I left after football season in 2011 and my Idea at the time was I might not come back at that point in time because um, the the, uh, the radio station that we're currently on, 700 ESPN, there were restrictions being put on my employment. I couldn't work, uh, you know, on air at any other group in Spokane, or I'd lose Eastern football games as well. Uh, So it was getting a little tight financially here to try to make ends meet. And so I went to Elko and I wasn't sure whether I was going to come back in in 2012 for Eastern football or not. And as it turned out, uh, for those who don't know, and I would imagine most of the people listening to this don't, Elko, Nevada is the largest gold mining area in the United States and the third largest gold mining area in the world. And when I was there in Elko, Gold was at an all-time high price, and so there was a huge move to get as much gold out of the ground by the uh, mining companies that were in Elko uh, as they could possibly do. And so they were hiring people, and they were hiring people at big money to come in there and mine gold. And so Elko probably uh, would be comfortable with a population of somewhere between twelve and 15,000, and there were over 25,000 people in Elko. At the time i was down there and i couldn't find a place to live uh, i was living in a hotel and uh you know, mainly uh through courtesy of the radio station owner and and we got to four months and and he said you know you need to find a place to live and i said there is no place to live and he said well then you need to be gone and so i happily left Elko at that point in time and and ended up going back to Eastern. And at that point in time, I ended up getting the basketball back because something had happened uh, at the radio station. And and they made the decision that their guy wasn't going to do basketball anymore for Eastern. And so I ended up getting uh, the whole thing back at that point in time. It's funny how things just work out sometimes. Uh,
0: uh, I found that to be the the case, at least in my experience. But uh, it says that in 25 years I suppose this should probably be 26, depending on the date of the article I read. I guess I should have written that down, but that you've never missed a game. You've never had one day where you just lost your voice or were too sick to get out of bed. Uh, how did you? How have you managed to do that?
1: Uh, I think luck more than anything else. Um, I'm a fairly healthy person, knock on wood. Um, but, you know... Uh, there was one game at the university of Idaho in basketball, and this would be going back into the probably mid 1990s where something was starting to overtake my voice. The longer the, the game went, um, the less voice I had. And by the end of the game, I was just barely uh, able to squeak everything out, uh, that needed to be squeaked out. I believe Dave cook, our sports information director may even have taken the post game interview, um, with our head coach at that point in time, uh, for me. But I still was able to do the stats and, and 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 that sort of stuff. Yeah, the only games that I've missed with Eastern and the only games I've missed, period, anywhere at any point in time, have been because I needed to be two places at one time. I missed one Eastern football game, and it's because uh, we couldn't get anybody to go to the Great Alaska Shootout over Thanksgiving weekend, so I ended up going with basketball we got another guy to, to do uh, an Eastern football game for us. And then with basketball, it's been where I've been with football and haven't been able to travel for basketball. But again, even through high school broadcasts, I've never missed a game uh, because of illness. And uh, there have been times where I've been ill during a broadcast, but I've never missed a game because of illness. And I think that goes back to the farm and and, and the, the work ethic. And, you know, we had cattle and and those cattle needed to be fed every day. And and, you know, my dad couldn't, you know, be sick or, or have a broken leg or a broken arm or, a, or whatever it might be. I mean, he had to be able to go feed those cattle. That was his job. That was his livelihood. That's what he had to do. And and so I think that has, you know, led through, uh, you know, a little bit with me that even if I'm not doing well, I'm still able to push forward and, and, and get through the broadcast. And and thankfully, I've never had a, a situation with a bout of laryngitis or um, you know, uh, kidney stones or, or some other, you know, strange malady that would, uh, cause me to, you know, have to, to, to just physically not be able to do a broadcast. I'm knocking on wood for you right now, as you say that, but what I, I was knocking on
0: my forehead as I was saying that. So, so with, uh, with that in mind, I'm sure there's been times when, Maybe you had a scratchy throat, but you were good enough to go, or you didn't feel good and you fought through it. What have can you do in those situations? And we've talked about this before with other people. But what do you do to kind
1: of force yourself to feel better, so to speak? Um, you know, I would probably say that the the uh, I I pro I, I think mainly the the what I would say for the most part is I I tend to just say screw it. I'm not gonna give in to the to whatever the, the situation is i'm going to go in, a, and do my thing but you know medications as much as you can whether it's a decongestant or or uh you know a, a, something along those lines to help try to to clear your head as much as you can for a broadcast sipping something hot beforehand whether it's tea uh that would be my go-to um and everybody has their own, you know, what they like to do to it. I've never been a person that's done the honey or, or anything like that. I just have, have done a, a a good hot tea, uh, in the past saying hydrated as much as you can, but you got to be careful on that because obviously if you're, you know, getting ready to do a, a two or a three or a four hour broadcast, you've <laughs> got to kind of Make sure that those fluids aren't still uh, within your system at the time of the or most of those fluids aren't with you at the time of the start of the broadcast because you may not get a break to go uh, relieve yourself once the game starts. So, uh, you know, it's 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 got to be a kind of a fair balance that you find for yourself. With me, it's been more mental than it has anything else. But uh, if I had to do anything, it would be a hot tea. And uh, I'm not a soda drinker anymore, but last year at, at Xavier, I, I felt that I was coming down with something in a, at our basketball game there, and, and so I got a diet Pepsi because there's something about the whether it's the carbonation or, or whatever uh, in a diet soda that helps me um, if I am struggling at a game more so than a hot drink because you can't keep hot drink hot throughout the game. And so uh, there's something about that diet Pepsi that can help me out a little bit through uh, a broadcast where I feel like my voice is starting to go a little bit. And so that's usually what I will go to if I have to have something uh, through the course of the game. But prior to the game, it'll be a hot tea. And then afterwards, obviously something hot, probably tea as well. So I heard a
0: little bit of a chuckle inside that answer when you were talking about um, needing to relieve yourself during a game. Do you have any horror stories
1: regarding that? Luckily, no. Um, uh, My friend uh, Sorensen will tell you I have an iron something, but he got it wrong. I have an iron bladder, uh, I will say. Um, You know, I just, I think there was... I don't have any horror stories from it. Um, There's only one time that I can remember, um, and it was just recently, and it was doing a high school game where I needed uh, a a little bit of a break in order to be able to visit the restroom. That was the first time that I ever remember having a situation where I had taken in too much fluid before a game and I needed – uh a quick break at halftime. I needed Paul to fill in a, a couple of minutes for me at halftime so that I could run to the restroom. Uh and that was maybe two, three weeks ago at a high school game. And I've been doing this since 1980. So uh you know I I, I don't know how to explain it. I've I've done six and a half hours of a baseball broadcast before. Uh, and have made it through. I routinely do roughly five hours with an Eastern broadcast from the start of the pregame show to the end of the postgame show, and I can make it through. Uh, But for whatever reason, that particular day, I had taken in too much fluid, and I don't know why, uh, and I didn't get rid of enough of it before we went on the air. And I think probably with age, that's something that may start to go wrong (laughs) a little bit more as, as, as we go here. So I may have to plan some strategy out for that. Um, You know, maybe we started recording a halftime interview or something, uh, you know, as I push closer to 60. You mentioned that you were, that situation
0: happened during a high school game. How many high school games are you broadcasting with what I'm sure is a pretty full Eastern Washington schedule?
1: Uh, One to two a week.
0: And how do you manage that?
1: Uh, you know, I like having money, so I, I make sure that I have time to, to, to prepare for everything. Uh, you know, I have the luxury of this is my job. I'm not going into a, uh, a, a, a terrestrial radio station anymore and, and working a, you know, a, a shift in there, whether it was a, <clears throat> excuse me, a morning shift or an afternoon shift or whatever it might be. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not having to do that anymore. So this is the only thing that I do. And so I have, you know, enough time in a week to be, be able to prepare uh, for more than one broadcast. Thankfully, if I was, you know, working full time as a, you know, a news director still or, or, you know, a disc jockey or, or whatever I may have done uh, earlier in my career to help supplement sports broadcasting, um, yeah, it, it probably would be different. Um, but now uh, with just doing play by play uh, pretty much on a full-time, year-round type basis, I'm able to, uh, you know, concentrate a few hours on a high school game, and I don't do as much preparation for a high school game as I do for an Eastern game. Mainly uh, because I don't have all the the the, the pregame interviews and, and halftime stuff going on um, that we do for an Eastern game. I handle all our, our recorded pregame content. I handle all our halftime content. I handle. Uh, everything except our post-game interviews, um, and and so I have to devote a fair amount of time to, uh, you know, having some reasonably decent questions to ask uh, a varying amount of people, and and sometimes I find out, uh, you know, 15 or 20 minutes before, uh, you know, half uh, our pregame show starts that oh so and so is going to come up, and we have a, a I should go back on this a little bit. We have a segments in our pregame show that's devoted to the university. And so sometimes word gets to me late uh, that a certain person within the university is going to come up and 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 be with me in the pregame show. And so uh, sometimes some of those uh, interviews are, are off the cuff more than anything else. But I like to be fairly prepared if I'm talking to players, uh, so forth, so on. So uh, I don't put in the time on the high school broadcasts that I do on the collegiate broadcast, but, uh, uh, it, it's still, and it's, it's good to get back. You know, I, I started doing high school games, so I still enjoy doing high school games and I enjoy going back and, and trying to stat a game and getting as close as I can to the official stats in the game. And, and there's a little point in pride of being able to do that because that's what Bob Robertson, my My mentor, who wasn't my mentor, he didn't have any idea he was my mentor, but he was because he was who I listened to, you know, as a teenager growing up. So there was a quote
0: from Wes Durham, the voice of the Atlanta Falcons, at the uh, uh, National Sports Media STAA event in Salisbury a couple years ago that I was able to attend where he said, doing high school games is actually harder than doing higher-level games. And I've done some small college games, so I can see what he means. What do you do to make sure that your high school games sound as good as your college
1: games uh, without maybe some of the information that they have available? You just dig as much as you can. Uh, You know, and it started for me back in 1980 when I first started doing the, the high school games in Toppenish. Uh, I'd grab the newspaper on Saturday morning and everybody that Toppenish would play, I would go through the Yakima newspaper and I would find, uh, you know, the, the recap of that game. And I would copy as much stuff out of their statistics, notes, um, quarter by quarter scores, whatever I could do. I had a, a, a notebook and I would pour everything into that notebook so that when time came um, that Toppenish played, Grandview, let's say, that I would have probably all of the Grand View games uh, that were turned into the Yakima Herald Republic. Probably all of their games were turned in statistically. And so I'd know who the leading ball carriers were for Grandview. And I'd know, you know what a person's high passing game or high rushing game or high receiving game might be. I'd know uh, if they were particularly good in the first quarter or the third quarter or whatever it might be and it was harder in basketball because I didn't live there. And sometimes there'd be a Tuesday non-league game thrown in and I'd try to get my uncle and my aunt to, you know, save those newspapers for me so I could pour over them. But sometimes they didn't get saved or, you know, they had use for the newspaper for something else. And, uh, uh, you know, it didn't get to me, um, on Friday when I'd show up on their doorstep. So, but I would keep, the stats, the scoring totals for each team from every game that I could get uh, out of the Yakima newspaper. And I've kind of kept doing that over the years when I've been doing high school games. I'll go back and, and uh, you know, I'll enter in. I've got my notebook. And so I know that, let's say Mead High School in Spokane, I go and put down their stats for every ball game, knowing that at some point I'm going to have Mead. High school again in my uh, in my broadcasts, or you know, if not this year, then next year, and I can look back at my numbers, you know, from 2016, and be able to say that you know whoever the quarterback was had a 300-yard passing game against Shadle Park High School, if that's the team they happen to be playing. You know that particular night. So I've always been kind of meticulous with that kind of stuff, but I am not meticulous with that with Eastern necessarily because somebody else is doing that. Uh, I'll still go through and, and do all that work, but somebody else is doing the physical part of it. I just have to go read and look it up and, and stuff along those lines. It isn't stuff that I have to make up, though I probably could uh, if that's what I wanted to do. And maybe it is what I should be doing at this point in time now that I think of it a little bit more. <laughs> maybe I should still have those notebooks going and be able to enter it in, because it certainly is easier in this day and age with the internet than it was in the old days when you're having to dive into newspapers.
0: Eastern Washington is famous for their bright red turf that probably, I would imagine, looks something like the inside of a volcano from up above. Is it ever difficult to read numbers or see players when they're wearing red jerseys
1: on that bright red turf? I've never had a problem with jerseys uniforms, anything like that on the red. The only time that I've had a problem occasionally is with the football uh, because it's probably closer in color on a red turf than it is on a green turf or a blue turf or any other colored turf that you could probably get other than a brown turf. So uh, occasionally with football, uh, with the football, I've had a a problem um, on fumbles. Uh, but usually then, you, you know, you just have to obviously go with reaction off what you see, you know, with your eyes If people are diving on the ground, you figure there's probably a fumble if you, you know, uh, if you do miss it, but that's the only time that I've ever had a problem with anything on the red turf is occasionally maybe you, you lose sight of the ball and that's it.
0: There's never, does Eastern Washington ever do alternate jerseys or any crazy jerseys that would especially blend in?
1: You know, they will wear red on red, on the red, um, you know, red helmets, red pants, red uh, red jerseys. But the numbers are always white. Um, you know, Eastern doesn't. My main peeve as a broadcaster is teams with dark numerals on dark jerseys or light numerals on light jerseys. And Eastern's never done anything like that. They've never had, you know, red jerseys with red numerals outlined in white or uh, you know anything along those lines. Um, so I've never had a uniform problem uh, on the Inferno while looking at a team. No more than I would with a team wearing green on a green field. Um, you know the, and Eastern is a guinea pig for uh, for Adidas, and so they do have a you know they've got four sets of uniforms. They've got red, gray, black, and and white, and they will wear. Um, any combination of any of those uniforms on any particular day so but all of them have you know contrasting numbers the white jerseys have red numbers the gray jerseys have uh, uh, they're they're more charcoal gray and so they've got a white number that stands out and the 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 red and the black jerseys both have white numbers so I've never had any problems as long as I have the light numbers on dark jerseys and dark numbers on light jerseys I don't have any problem with anybody's uniform even Boise state the few, the times that I've I've done games out of Boise back in the day never had any problem seeing their jerseys on their field in 27 years at Eastern Washington
0: Obviously, there's probably been a time or two or a time in your life where at least there was a thought of pursuing a higher-level job, but you've stayed the whole time. Has there been opportunities for you to leave? And if there ever was an opportunity, would you consider it?
1: You know, I think at this point in time, the ship has sailed. I'm 56 years old. Um, I don't think any uh, Power Five conference school or even FBS conference school in football would be necessarily looking to hire a fifty-six year old. And if they are looking to hire a fifty, well, it'll be fifty-seven next year by the time we get to twenty eighteen. And if they are, they probably should, you know, have their heads examined because they should be finding a young guy who can come up and and be their twenty-seven year broadcaster eventually. Um you, you know, I think when I took the Eastern job in nineteen ninety one, uh, I think the idea was to try to move up and to to get as high as as I could get. Uh but Along the line, uh, the fact that I'm a crappy networker. And because I think, in part, that I was an only child and and grew up on a farm and didn't have a lot of people contact, um, especially when I was younger, I was exceptionally shy. And I did not know how to go about getting another job because I wasn't very forward and I didn't ask a lot of questions and I didn't know a lot of people. Uh, within the business. And so between all of that, I never pursued another job because I didn't know how to go about it because I wasn't forward enough or uh, forceful enough um, to to go out there and, and and go grab it. And I've always been very content at Eastern. And I think the longer that I stayed here, once I got past 10 years or so, um, it just became the place where I kind of wanted to be. And and. So I'd say over the last 15 years, I've never even thought of pursuing another job. And, you know, if if Washington State had approached me at some point in time, sure, I probably would have considered it. Um, And I probably, truth be told, would have taken it. Um, cause I don't think you can turn down one of those types of jobs, but at this point in time, I'm not pursuing it. I can't imagine a situation of pursuing it, nor can I imagine a situation because of my age where I think uh, another school, uh, would approach me at that level. Do you have any regrets with, you know, being, as you said, a crappy networker or, or can you look back and just be happy with the way things are? I am happy with the way things are, but at the same point in time, yeah, I can look back at regret that, you know, that I didn't manage contacts better, mainly not so much professionally, but just personally. I mean, when I was, uh, you know, in 1989 with the Spokane Indians, Bruce Bochy was our field manager. And Bruce and I had a great relationship and I went down to, 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 um, in, in 1990, he got the job at high desert, uh, in the California league. And I went down there and stayed with him for a few days in 1990. And that was the last day I saw Bruce Bochy and I've never talked to him since. How dumb is that <laughs> to, to let that type of, of course, at this point, and I knew he'd be a major league manager because he was so good at it. And I just, you know, uh. I always have thought that people had probably better things to keep track of than Larry Weir, and I wasn't forward enough to to keep things going myself. And so, you know, that was just one guy, Kevin Towers, who was the general manager for the the Padres and for the Diamondbacks and so forth. He was our pitching coach in 89 and in 90, and I'd see Kevin from time to time – how uh he he might be in an airport and I'd be at the airport at the same time. I'd see him in the San Diego airport probably two or three times, but again, I haven't talked to, to to Kevin in who man, probably close to twenty years, and that's another dumb move on my part. Uh, Bob Gebhardt was the general manager for the Colorado Rockies in nineteen ninety six I was broadcasting Yakima Bears baseball games in the in the Northwest League, and we were playing in Portland and at the time in Portland they uh, they never really had a good spot for... It was a baseball stadium, but it wasn't a good spot for a baseball broadcast. And so in this particular year, they had us in what we called the bunker, which was behind home plate at field level. And in the bunker, you were probably eye level with the batter's kneecaps. And so depth perception was a huge problem in Portland. You had pretty much on a fly ball wait to see who moved to know whether it was a a, a foul ball to the catcher or a home run to left field. Um, And Bob Gebhardt, who was the general manager of the Colorado Rockies, who was Portland's uh, 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 major league team at the time, uh, was there, and Rockies management put him next to me in my little booth, I guess you could call it, for the game. At the end of five days, Gebhardt gave me his business card, said, is there anything I can ever do? Uh, for you, let me know. And I didn't keep the business card. So like that, Towers and Bochi on that end were more personal than it was professional, but Gebhardt would have been a professional contact to keep. And so I tell young broadcasters all the time, you got to be a networker, even if it's not natural for you, even if you're not a people person, if you're not, you know, whatever it might be, you still have to, if you're not an ass kisser, it doesn't matter. You still got to keep those relationships, if nothing else, just on the personal level. If you have a a, a good friendship with somebody, um, don't let it go. And I've let that go at Eastern in a couple of occasions. Ray Jacoletti was our basketball coach. Uh, uh, for four seasons in the early 2000s, he and I were great friends, and we rarely talk anymore because I, you know, I just don't bother Ray because I figure he has something else to do, and Ray doesn't bother me because I don't reach out to him. I guess probably so. And there have been others that that go with that too. Bo Baldwin, who was our past coach uh, here at Eastern in football, I haven't talked to Bo since he left to California. So, you know, it's stuff like that that it isn't natural to me, but it's stuff I've got to get better at. I just have a hard time doing it. So one of the Fun things about
0: covering a team for a long time is you really get to know the coaches, the players, the people involved with the team. And I read a funny story that uh, you kind of knew you were you were one of the guys on the team when they tied your shoelaces to a piece of metal on the bus uh,
1: while you were sleeping. Tell us that story. Yeah, it was a it was a plane flight actually, and. And it was 1990, I think it was 1998 or 1999. It might even have been 2000. I can't remember. But we were on a flight to somewhere. And I had fallen asleep in my chair. And we had a couple of pranksters on the team. One was Dennis Fitzgerald was his name. And the other was Aaron Olson. Both were really good players. And uh, yeah, they tied my, my, my shoelaces to the uh, metal part of the seat underneath. And they also rolled up a piece of paper, newspaper, magazine paper, or whatever, and stuck it in my mouth. Like I had a cigarette in my mouth. And so I woke up to that in my mouth. And then I tried, to, I got that out and then I tried to move my right foot and it wouldn't go anywhere because the shoelace was tied, was tied to the, to the metal thing under the, under the seat. And so that felt good just to, be a part of the crowd because when you're with a team on a regular basis, there's all sorts of practical jokes going on. And it's usually between the players or the manager and the players and the coaches and the players, whatever it might be. But it's not that often in my experience with the broadcaster, with the players. So it was, um, it was, it was nice to know that, that they kind of almost thought of you as, as one of the bunch and not somebody from the outside which we can be sometimes as broadcasters, especially in my situation at Eastern now, where I don't travel with the team. I travel on my own. And so I don't have as much interaction with those guys as I used to have. And I love the freedom of traveling by myself, uh, but I hate the fact that I don't have um, as much interaction with the players as I used to have. The technology of Being a broadcaster
0: has changed a lot. Uh, Maybe not, uh, probably the actual technology that you do a broadcast with has, but the stuff around it that you have to do is really uh, where I meant to go with that question. The social media, the podcasting, and everything like that. And you have an active social media presence. You run a podcast for Eastern Washington. How much of an adjustment has it been for you or I guess how difficult has it been to keep pace and maybe not necessarily to adjust with the changing technology?
1: Oh, it's it's really tough. I mean, just in, you know, <laughs> in getting this interview ready and, and doing it off of Skype, I am a Skype novice. I think this is the second time I've ever done anything on Skype. Um and, and so something like this is is foreign to me. Um, you know, when I started, obviously, in 1980, there was no Internet. There was no uh, computer programming. There was, uh, you know, a- inside a radio station, you actually had to have a body physically inside the radio station in order for the radio station to to broadcast. And so, yeah, there's there's just been a ton of changes, uh, you know. Uh, uh, with the social media side, with the podcasting, uh, with transmission of the games now being able, so many schools now are are doing it off the, uh, you know, the IP connections and and, and, and uh, less by phone line and and ISDN uh, and, and things along those lines. And then just the size of the equipment now, you know, we use a Comrex Access and I haven't gotten my ruler out to to measure the size of the Comrex access. But I remember that first broadcast of that tribal basketball tournament in 1980, I had a piece of equipment that they had to come set up for me because I had no idea about how these things were done that all bet you was maybe three feet high by four feet wide. Uh, It was just a huge piece of equipment that they had to use um, you know, to, 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 to get this game done. And, and we did it, um, through a Marty antenna at the time. And so, uh, you know, we had, we'd set up an antenna, uh, there in the building and, and, and we'd have our great big Marty transmitter and, and we'd shoot the broadcast from the gym to, uh, the radio station through that transmission. And so just those things have changed. You know, we, we used to have to have, uh, I'll bet you a case Full, a big trunk full of, of equipment that I'll bet you weighed north of 50 pounds. And now I walk into a gym with my Comrade's Access or into a press box and I have maybe 10 pounds of gear with me. Um, you know, it's, it's everything has changed about this business, um, you know, in the last 37 years. So I have
0: obviously not been in the business for 37 years, but I've been in it long enough to know that. Uh, I hate Marty units. I I hate them with every inch of my being. <laughs> they never ever work when I need to use them. And even to the extent that I swear to God, I would it would not work for me. I'd get there early because I know it wouldn't work for me. Somebody would come do the exact same thing I just did, and it would work for them. They just hated me. But give me a couple Marty horror stories.
1: Yeah, you know we we had a we we had some some interesting. Parts with the Marty, but the the, the ones that really where I, where I had the stories from would be, and I'm trying to remember what the system was that we used, but we would somehow go from the gym to a telephone in a coach's office for basketball. We would use uh, 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 things called uh, banana clips, I think is what they were called. And this is in an old rotary phone where you could screw off the uh the 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 phone part the 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 microphone part of an old rotary telephone and you could clip on to a couple of uh, little prongs on the inside of that phone and you could do a broadcast over the phone that way and so i can't remember how we would get the broadcast from our location into that phone in the coach's room but there was more than one occasion You know, there was no talk back, back and forth between the station. And so once I left that site, they couldn't talk to me anymore until it was time to go hang up the the phone at the end of the game. So if something happened and the phone connection was lost, they had no way of getting a hold of me except to call the state police or the county police or the city police or whoever it might be. And so there was more than one time in the gym where the cops walk in and they come up to me and they say, are you, Larry Weir? And at this point in time, <laughs> when you're a 19-year-old kid, you're wondering, oh, crap, what did I do? Not thinking that your broadcast wasn't on the air. And then they, hey, you're off the air. You need to go redial the radio station. <laughs> <laughs> and so there was a couple of situations. And once you, it happens to you once or twice, then you kind of get used to it. But we had those things go on a time or two. We'd have people that would walk through and they'd see your phone off the hook in the in the coaches uh, uh, room and they just hang it up because they figured the coach had forgotten to do it. And so we had a few of those type things go on. I actually have had fairly good success with the Marty for the most part. We'd have a, a maybe an occasion. The, the, the big problem was was probably trying to get the gear to wherever it is that it needed to be and then get the antenna in a spot where you could uh, go and 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 get a shot at the radio station that was hard to do sometimes as well where you'd have to climb up on the roof or something and you know thankfully I had to do that when I was a young kid and was fairly you know a little more limber maybe than I am today. I could still probably get the job done, but I'd probably also fall over something where i I probably didn't back then um but yeah there would have to be some gymnastics done occasionally with the Marty unit to make it work right but those phone units, I hated those things when, when you were away from the phone, you couldn't manage the situation, and you couldn't hear a person on the other end. Because you never knew whether you were on or off, you'd have a stopwatch there to time your breaks, and you'd always time a one-minute break to 63 seconds just in case the board op didn't hit that button immediately uh, You know when you went to break or in case somebody got lazy and did a 32-second spot instead of a 30.
0: So since we've gotten to this part kind of naturally, I like to ask everybody, what are some of your broadcast horror stories where things went horribly, horribly wrong, or you just had a really bad broadcast setup uh, where you were probably mortified at the time, but you can laugh about it, and it makes a great story now? I imagine
1: in 37 years you have one or two of those. Well, we had one just this past year at at UC Davis where it it wasn't communicated to me that we were being booted out of our booth in the press box because their head football coach, Dan Hawkins, wanted his film crew to be in our box so they would have closer to a 50-yard line view of the stadium than they would uh, if they were outside, which is where they should have been, where I ended up being, uh, which was on about the 30-yard line, but it wasn't communicated to me that we would be outside, so I had nothing. Thankfully, it was a nice day and there was no problems uh, weather-wise, but, you know, we've got a, you know, $4,000 Comrex access sitting out there. If it had been, you know, a deluge of brain, I wouldn't have been prepared for it. Our computer, our, 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 our Comrex unit, unit wouldn't have been prepared for it. I don't know what would have happened, but that was one, uh, that still kind of gets my goat a little bit just because it was a film crew. It wasn't a TV broadcast. It wasn't anything else that, that made us lose our spot. It was a film crew for the, for the uh, home football team. Um, We had a a broadcast once in basketball uh, where we were having a hard time. We were using a Comrex Matrix, I think, at the time, and so we had a phone connection. And for whatever reason, the phone line wasn't clean that night, and we couldn't make connection with the Matrix over the phone. And so I'm trying to make that connection with the Matrix, and I'm broadcasting the game with a cell phone uh, held up to my head, and I've got my headset still on my head to, to hold the, the, the cell phone. Um, so I'm not having to, to sit there with that thing the whole time. And our cheerleaders come out onto the floor during a timeout to do uh, a sandwich giveaway. They're throwing Subway sandwiches up into the crowd, six inch subs. And so they're throwing those things up into the crowd. And all of a sudden, one of the male cheerleaders, you know, winds up like a uh, fast pitch softball pitcher and wants to fire one up into the upper deck. Only they fired one into my forehead and knocked my headset off. Cell phone went flying. I'm already stressed uh, because we're not making connection with the station. I'm having to do a broadcast on a stupid cell phone, and so I'm pissed off anyway. And he hits me in the head with his subway sandwich, and it goes up into the crowd. And I'm just livid. And that poor kid was mortified because that's not obviously what he was trying to do. And I didn't care that was what he was trying to do. I was... I went quite hot. That doesn't happen very often. I it might even have been the last time that I just blew up into a rage. And I was yelling at the poor kid. And then after you get done with that, you feel bad because you know the kid didn't mean to itch in the head with the sandwich. But it was the cell phone flying and the, the headset flying and and uh, everything else that uh, that contributed to that. I broadcast games out of the back end of pickup trucks. um out of uh, the back row of five rows of stands in an opposing high school football stadium. Um, I have broadcast games from, from lots of odd situations, uh, arena football games and indoor football league games from end zones instead of in the center of the field. Um, you know, there's, there's been a lot of interesting places um, that I've had to broadcast from. Uh, I've, I've had a couple of run-ins with mascots trying to steal my crowd microphone that hasn't necessarily gone all that well. Uh, one year at the University of Montana, mascots were not supposed to be uh, out on the court at that point in time, and their their mascot, Monty, uh, happened to walk by and just grab my uh, crowd microphone and start to walk off with it. I don't think he knew that it re- there was no really – more line for it to go. So when he started walking off with that, he started walking off with my equipment as well. And so I got up and I wasn't very happy about that. And I started yelling at him and told him to leave my stuff alone. And next break he came back and he started to do it again. And I started yelling at him again. And, uh, he gave me one, uh, uh gesture and I gave him a middle finger gesture which then got the crowd behind me upset because I just flipped off their mascot. And so they started yelling at me. And so there's been a few things like that that have, have gone on over the years, I guess. <laughs> That's <laughs> nothing that I'm really proud of, but uh, a couple that are kind of funny, I think, maybe at the time. They certainly
0: make good stories. Um, we'll ask the last couple of questions that we ask just about everybody here, because um, I know we need to get you on your way here soon, but... Walk us through your preparation process. By the time we release this, it will be basketball season. So uh, take us through your basketball preparation process.
1: Well, I'll, I'll kind of give you both football and basketball Perfect. since we have the opportunity. And, and, you know, because nobody showed me how to do a broadcast and, uh, um, you know, I never really talked to anybody uh, the first 10, 12 years that I did this, Um, I didn't know anything about spotting boards, and so now for me to use a spotting board is completely left-handed, and so what I'll do for basketball is I just use a yellow legal pad, and this is how I did it when I was listening to Bob Robertson in the 1970s broadcast Washington State games. It's still how I do it today because I don't trust computers. I still keep my score uh, of games. Uh, I don't sit there and, 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 and you know count on um, the computer to be right all the time because sometimes they freeze up. And so I always have my scorekeeping done. But what I'll do on the left side is I'll have the number uh, of the player and then the player's names. Over the number, I will have their scoring average, uh, their rebounding average if they're a big guy or their assists average if they're a guard. Um, and I kind of set the, the the threshold at four rebounds for an interior player and three rebounds for a wing or a, or a, or a, a guard. Um, and then I'll have assists, steals, blocks, whatever might be notable for each player. And then on the right side, I'll, I'll kind of have then I'll draw a line down and then I'll, I'll have the area where I can keep uh, field goals and then another area where I can keep throws and another area where I keep fouls. And then on the far right side of the page, I'll put there – um, uh, height, uh, their year in school, uh, their hometown, um, uh, and then use some of that area on the right side to put in field goal percentage, three point percentage with numbers of makes, uh, free throw percentage, and any other little notes that I think I need to know about that player. And so that's kind of how I've done it for basketball over the years. And And uh, it's pretty much been consistent with the addition of additional information, obviously, since moving into the college ranks. There is, you know, more background information available on players. And so I can uh, make some notes, more notes over there than I used to make when I was uh, broadcasting high school games, uh, you know, before the advent of the Internet and when I was getting stuff out of the newspaper uh, on a weekly basis. Uh, And then for football, uh, I just memorize I I have a good memory, thankfully, that has stuck with me over the years, and and uh, I, I memorize everybody. I think I need to, to memorize, and probably a few that I don't think I need to memorize, uh, and then I just use the two deep that the uh, schools will give you always a, you know some kind of a, a a two deep chart prior to the game on on a uh, you know a good size piece of paper, and then I. We'll have a list of things that I want to to write on that, and it might be their rushing yards or their passing yards or their receiving yards or their tackles, sacks, et cetera, for a defensive player. Uh, And then also some other stories that I think are interesting. For instance, Weber State is who Eastern played last week, and, and they have a defensive tackle by the name of McKay Murphy. And McKay Murphy's dad was Dale Murphy from the uh, Atlanta Braves back in the day, a seven-time All-Star and two-time MVP. And two of his brothers played in the NFL. And so I had all that information, and I wrote that down in, in uh, McKay's territory. And, and the fact that he was 26 years old and had been at the University of Utah, I believe it was, prior to going to Weber State and all that kind of stuff, I kind of filled that all in in my own hieroglyphics. But I know what it says that probably anybody else would look at that and say, what in the world is that chicken scratch that you've got on that uh, on that page? Uh, and so that's kind of how I've always done it uh, with football that, you know, those those spawning boards. I tried to use those some in the early 90s and it just for me was left handed because I I didn't grow up in this business learning to use them and it never became comfortable and I wasn't patient enough uh, to just let it marinate for a year and and relearn a different system i wanted to do what i wanted to do that was most comfortable for me and uh, that's kind of how i do it and i i've heard of other broadcasters over the years that don't use uh, a spotting board but i think we're greatly outnumbered by those who do and and as far as i'm concerned that's great for those folks but How I do it happens to work for me just because that's how I started doing it on my own and had to feel my own way doing it, you know, starting all those years ago. What do you do still to this day to get better as a broadcaster? I listen to myself. I don't like listening to myself, but I listen to myself to to see what I can improve on because I grew up listening to games, and I think that's a, a big problem that we have In this day and age, because games are so readily available on TV, I think today's young broadcasters grow up watching games on TV, and that's their point of reference. Uh, I had two years when I was a a kid where we had no TV. Uh, We lived in a canyon. We had an antenna up on top of the hill that served the three or four other families in our general area, and the wind blew it down one year. and, And the wheat prices were bad, and cattle prices were bad, and none of us had any money to put the antenna back up. Or, to get a new antenna because the wind pretty much had, had ruined the old one, and so we went a couple of years without TV, so my reference was radio um, you know when i when I listen to games, and I still find that I learn uh, something uh, when I listen to other people uh, do games, and so all you know if I'm on a drive late at night, I'll drive around and and or I'll dial around and, and try to find what games I can listen to. Um, on the radio, whether it's an NFL game or an NBA game or a college game or even a high school game, I've picked up things occasionally from some random high school broadcaster that I'm driving through, you know, the middle of nowhere sometime at, at, at night. Um, so I try to listen to other people and uh, see what they're doing, and I try to listen to myself and, and 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 air check myself a little bit and and see what I can improve upon there because. You can learn a lot from listening to yourself, uh, you know, just crutch phrases that maybe you're, you're lapsing into, especially with basketball. Um, and then you learn something from, I, I mean, I, I'd stolen a couple of things that I use on, on my calls today from various broadcasters. And, and just listening to other people helps you formulate your own style. You know, I, when I grew up, I was basically a, a disciple of Bob Robertson, but then I figured out that AM radio stations at night uh, you can hear them from other areas, and I discovered Bill King doing Golden State Warrior games in the mid 1970s. And then the Seattle Mariners came into existence in 1977, and I started listening to Dave Niehaus and how he broadcasts a game. And and so I kind of became a, a a little bit of a, a combination of Bob Robertson, Bill King, um, Dave Niehaus, and maybe even a little bit of Harry Carey in there. um and I think King Niehaus, and Kerry have a lot in common. Robertson doesn't have as much in common with those guys. And I think it's kind of become a, a a pretty good, um, melting pot for me just then with my own natural personality and the stuff that I naturally do, um, you know, kind of wrapped around the fringes of what those guys did, um, and I think that it's come out to be a, a pretty good mix for me and uh, has served me well over the years, regardless of what sport I'm doing, uh, you know, whether it's a, a car race or a motorcycle race on TV to a volleyball match or a, a high school wrestling match or, or you know, a, a college basketball game or a professional baseball game or a, or a football game someplace. So you mentioned
0: some of your influences. Who are some of your favorite broadcasters to listen to now on a night off, maybe on a national level and maybe in your conference and in your region that other people might not know about?
1: Yeah, I, I love listening as far as baseball goes to John Miller. Uh, he could, I could listen to him do any ball game at any time, anywhere. Uh, I just, I just love the way that 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 he does it. Um, One of the things that I was most jealous of, I probably have never been as jealous of any one person as I was uh, in 1994 in Eugene. Um, Oh, shoot. His name was uh, Dennis Higgins. That's who he was. Um, Dennis, uh, it was was 1994. Was it 94? Yes. 94 was the Major League Baseball strike. And so John Miller's mother lived in the Eugene, Oregon area. And John had come back during the strike to, to visit his mother, and he just happened to to listen to Dennis doing a Eugene Emeralds game, and he asked to come sit in with him um, for a few games. And one of those games was when Spokane was uh, happened to be in town. And I was so jealous of Dennis for having John Miller there because I loved John Miller even in 1994, and and I would love to have sat there with him and picked his brain and and so forth, so on. Um and I did get a chance to meet him, but not enough time to, to talk to him. And, and frankly, probably even if he had been in the booth, I wouldn't have used the contact based on my my past anyway. But, um, you know, John Miller is somebody that I enjoy. Dan Schulman is another guy that I enjoy doing baseball, uh, you know, locally in our area. Bob Rondo at the University of Washington is uh, he's a, a treat to listen to anytime I get the opportunity to hear him. Uh, And he's retiring at the end of this season, which is, uh, you know, it's a sad day. I was never a Husky fan, but he's a tremendous broadcaster. Uh, I really think Matt Chazenow at Washington State's growing into his uh, job. He was one of the young guys, I think, maybe that initially was a little more TV based on the radio and it was harder maybe to, for those of us who grew up on radio games to see the game in our mind's eye, uh, but Matt is doing a fantastic job now, I think, at WSU and has turned into really a good broadcaster who's going to go places uh, within the Big Sky Conference. Jay Sanderson at Montana State is, is really good. I always pick something up from Jay uh, when I'm listening to him. Mitch Stroman down at Northern Arizona does a nice job down there and has one of the tougher jobs of doing a TV radio simulcast for their home games uh, on Fox Sports. That's not necessarily what he's doing now, but in the past few years, that's what he's had to do uh, for their home games, that TV radio simulcast with Fox Sports, which there's nothing, nothing tougher in this business because you have to serve two masters, and I don't think you can do either well, but Mitch did it as good as you can. Kevin Calabro is another guy here in the Northwest who did Seattle Supersonics games for years and is now doing TV for the Portland Trail Blazers. Calabro is fantastic to listen to. Um, you know, and then there's uh, probably a lot of other guys as I am uh, go traveling through that, uh, uh, that I listen to. I, I would rather listen to a ball game on the radio than hear music on the radio if I'm driving at night. And so that's usually I go in search of a game and sometimes I don't even know who it is that I'm listening to. Um, uh you know if they don't identify themselves i'll not know who it was but usually at some point in time not it doesn't happen all the time but there's times where all Ooh, that was pretty good i might try to to draft that into what i'm doing uh you know and i don't think you can ever Uh, be too full of yourself to to not think that you can learn uh, from listening to other people and that's what i tell young broadcasters you got to listen to the radio you got to listen to guys doing radio and doing it well so you can understand what you need to do to become as detailed as you need to be because you have to be more detailed than the tv guys are as we talked earlier just because the picture's there for you you don't have to 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 be that person's eyes
0: thank god for the premium tune-in app (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's, that's what I use to listen to people, including yeah, you, know, you I, around the country. Thing, Logan, I, I just don't, I, I haven't, you know, I, I, that's something that I should probably do and, and, and start to, to do things like that because that's uh technology that's available to us, um, that I just haven't, haven't used, but that's, that's a great tip.
0: All right. Well, how would somebody reach out to you if they wanted to do so? We'll get you on your way.
1: Well, you can uh, find me on Twitter at Larry Weir, W-E-I-R-P-B-P, for play-by-play. Uh, that's probably the, the main way of doing it. Um, on, I'm on Facebook, too. Uh, it, it, if people want to see that, is, is obviously me, Larry Weir. So uh, that's really about the only two places I'm at on social media. All
0: right. Well, I really appreciate you taking your time to come on the show and we'll uh, let you get on your way.
1: Logan, it was my pleasure. Had a blast. Uh, I feel like I could keep talking to you for for a long time, so maybe we'll have to do it again somewhere down the road. (laughs) I'll take you up on that. Thank
0: you for tuning in to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Please reach out to the guests that take the time to come on the show. They are a great resource for you, and it's nice to show the guests kind enough to join the show that they are appreciated. Also, please subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, the TuneIn app, or the SayTheDamnScore.com email update list. I'm Logan Anderson. Next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more.